Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. This morning, we had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard and Ajawa Ipateo. We are going to talk about the unsung heroes. Let me just start off by saying good morning to you guys. How are you doing? Very well. I'm fine. Thanks so much. Great. And Dr. Nimhard, can I call you Jessica? Yeah. Okay. So... Let's start with Dr. Jessica Gurnemhart to tell us what is the Co-op Heroes and the Unsung Hero. So uh, National Cooperative Business Association and the uh, Co-op Development Foundation created this honor, the highest honor in the U.S. co-op movement called the Co-op Hall of Fame. And about, what, four or five people a year are inducted as co-op heroes. And basically, it's recognition of a lifetime of service, dedication, accomplishment uh, in the co-op world, either uh, as a co-op educator or in a specific industry like credit unions or co-op education or uh, rural electric co-ops or food co-ops. And so recognizing people who have gone sort of above and beyond just being a good movement member, but also um, making real difference in their community, continual, you know, lifetime difference in their communities. And uh, do you know anybody that's been a hero, <laughs> co-op hero? <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> the way you asked that question. Yes, I was inducted in 2016. <laughs> And I actually know lots of heroes. Uh, Carmen Huertas Noble, another colleague of mine at at Cooney, who's a law, co-op law professor and community law professor. Um, uh, Ralph Page from the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and several of his staff and colleagues have been honored. So I do know some people and, of course, I've participated in some of the events. So I've met people over the years who have been inducted. So there's what, about so four a year, it started in 1974. It's almost 30 years now, right? Mm-hmm. So there's probably about 120 people inducted, maybe a little less. There's a plaque, there's a whole wall in the uh, Clusa building, I guess, in DC that has the plaques and then the nominating group gets a plaque. And then the uh, the honorees get, uh, actually get a glass sculpture of Twin Pines the honoree, the co-op hero. So your contribution is with what? Why were you inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame? I was inducted as a co-op researcher for my, especially my contribution to our knowledge about the history of African-American cooperatives from my book and research. Uh, my book is called Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic 
thought and practice and um, the research I did there. And also, actually, I was nominated by the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops because a lot of my work and a lot of my co-op activism has focused on worker co-ops, understanding their benefits to communities, being able to measure their accomplishments, as well as uh, I've been a co- I'm a co-founder of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, a co-founder of the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy, and so I've done a lot of activism around uh, worker co-op development in addition to the research I do. Well, when I really look at your resume, I would think you're about either 100 years old or 200 years old because you've just <laughs> contributed a lot. And I, I am so pleased to know you and have the opportunity of talking to you. So, Ajawa, how did you get involved in this co-op world? <laughs> you know, I got involved through Jessica. Um, <laughs> Jessica was enabling me to go to the first Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy. She helped to organize that. That was in College Park in 2001 or two? Two. Two, yeah. 2002. It's our 20th anniversary this year. Yes, yes. So I went there. I was just so amazed at all of the people and all the ideas and the co-ops the older people, the younger people. It was just fascinating. And I came away thinking, I can do that. And so (laughs) I got two friends together. We actually tried to start a co-op in D.C. around that time. And then Jessica also invited me to work with Grassroots Economic Organizing. And um, so that publication covers co-ops, advocates for co-ops, and alternative economic solutions. And so we, Jessica and I, at one point, were the only two black people in the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops and, you know, doing this hmm. work that we knew of for, what, 20 years or something? <laughs> or maybe not 20, but most of the time. Yeah, for a long time. And while Jessica was doing her research for the book, because, you know, the whole thing was people thought that co-ops was something white people did. And Jessica brought a whole new understanding to that when she did worked on her book and really showed that that was the way black people survived. But I don't want to steal her thunder. <laughs> so Jessica told us on, on the air that people thought it was white hippie people, tofu-eating hippie people that were into <laughs> co-op and did not know the whole history that blacks were in it and farmers were in it and credit unions, et cetera. There's so much besides food co-ops, which the hippies were into. But you mentioned something I'd like for you to keep talking about, Ajawa, is why did blacks use it to survive this co-op model? That was the only thing that we had. We were excluded from society. And so black people set up mutual aid societies, as Jessica talks about in Collective Courage mutual aid societies to get services that were denied to us after slavery. And then, you know, the boys starting co-ops. And it was just the way that we could handle our business. But Jessica is the expert on that. (laughs) She is. And it seems to be just common sense almost that if we don't have very much, if we pool our pennies, our nickels, our dollars, whatever we have, we can get so much more done. And for me, that's the whole black church. The whole black church that started black universities and et cetera, just pooling what resources we had in terms of dollars, but also skill sets and working together. And too often in my 
experience. We don't give ourselves, black folks don't give ourselves enough credit for that. How we how we did right. so much with so little. Jessica? Right. And we know that a lot of the early mutual aid societies and a lot of the early co-ops started in churches or with church congregations or in religious institutions. So there's a whole connection between that collective tithing and working together um, and then, right, so sort of doing it spiritually, a little bit economically through the, the religious organizations and then taking it totally into the business models, you know, as they see it working and as they're comfortable doing it. So it's actually the very earliest mutual aid and co-ops started um, through churches and religious institutions and then through uh, black schools. Those are the first two institutions that really ended up supporting co-op development the most. Okay. And why do we need a, an unsung hero category in the Hall of Fame, Jessica? Right. Well, if you look at the Hall of Fame winners, right, I mentioned some of the people I know, but I mentioned mostly people of color, but we're a very tiny group out of that whole group, whatever I said, 120 or whatever. When we started looking at it, there were only about, what did we say, 11 women. Most of the heroes were white men. And even of the 11 women that we found had been honored, I think it was seven of them were honored with their husbands. So only four women were honored individually for themselves. There were, what, about maybe another five to seven black folks. I don't think there were any Latinx people honored until um, Carmen Huertas, Noble. Um, And so we realized that there was, you know, there was a missing, right, from 1974 when when it was started, there was a whole missing segment. And then from the past, Right. And actually, it was Margaret Lund who came to me and she said, you know, you uncovered all these heroes from the past. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a way that the Co-op Hall of Fame could recognize some of them, too, in addition to, you know, starting to rewrite the history that other people of color, women were so, you know, that it wasn't just a dom- the heroes weren't dominated by men being honored. And so she and I put a proposal together to the Cooperative Development Fund and had long talks with them and the board, and everybody thought it was a great idea. So we were able to get a new category um, last year for this year's winners. We actually had a separate selection process because it was after the original selection process. We also realized that there was more research that needed to be done, and so the uh, CDF was able to use some of their education grant funding to fund uh, the research for three nominations. And so we're, you know, and they're willing to continue to do that. So there's a fund out there every year to do research, to do the unsung hero applications as thoroughly as possible. So CDF is Corporate Development Funds, Corporate Development Foundation. I always get Foundation. that. Foundation. I don't CD- know. I keep calling it both. <laughs> okay. So cdf.coop want to go there to find out all about this cooperative hall of fame. Uh, and this right. is their main heroes. annual fundraiser. Go yeah. ahead. I think it's heroes.coop. 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 And by the way, Jessica, I just put my arithmetic hat on 1974 to 19 to 2024 would be 50 years times four oh. would be 200. So <laughs> approximately 200 people. Okay. Yeah, sometimes there are only three winners, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so more than we were uh, thinking. Yeah. But anyway, they were dominated by yeah. white men. 
and we realized part of the reason was right that that the contributions of other people that are normally marginalized in our society hadn't been raised, and we needed a way to do that. And this first unsung hero is who? Who won? Uh, Joe Baker. So one of mine, and actually Adjua's heroes, and Adjua will talk more about her because Adjua was the one who did the research for the nomination. But, you know, she figures very prominently in my book because really, even though she's not known for it, right, she's known for her civil rights activities in the 50s and 60s, she in the 30s was one of the co-founders and was the national director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League, which was a very important organization throughout the Depression that focused black folks, especially black youth, on cooperative development. We'll be right back. We're going to talk more about Ella Jo Baker and the National Cooperative Negro League uh, right after this break. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Ronald Oaks in the program at Everything Co-op. We have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard on the show with her. She's the author of Collective Carriage, and she is a winner of the Cooperative Hall of Fame. And we're here talking today with with Dr. Nimhard and Ajawa Ifateo about the first recipient of the Unsung Heroes. And the heroes this year will be inducted into Co-op Hall of Fame on October the 6th. So it's right around the corner. And that first inductee is Ella Jo Baker. So, Ajawa, how did you find out about Ella Jo Baker? Because you were part of creating the co-op, the Ella Jo Baker Housing Co-op. I don't know the whole name. Ella Jo Baker Intentional Community Cooperative. Uh, I found out from Linda Leakes who was a uh, housing organizer in D.C. She saw the gentrification that was happening at that time, and she had already set up several co-ops herself, like 15 or 16 of them. And she wanted to save uh, uh, housing for organizers so that we could continue to live in D.C. So we found uh, five or six houses in Columbia Heights. And Linda said, we have named this after Ella Jo Baker because she was into cooperatives and she was a proponent of grassroots leadership, top down, I mean, bottom up leadership, which is what we believed in, that we as individual people had the smarts, the knowledge, the passion to figure out what we wanted and, and had, you know, had the skills or could develop the skills to do it. And so we organized the Ella Jo Baker Intentional Community. Her middle name is Josephine, and she was affectionately called Ella Jo. And so that's how we named our co-op. And so, yes, we, we all have a love for Ella Jo Baker. So when it came down to, uh, time to do the research, of course, I wanted to do research on Ella Jo. <laughs> okay. Okay. Dr. Nimhard, you said that she's prominent in your book. What struck you most about Ella Jo Baker as you were doing your research for your book, which I understand from you, it took you about 15 years to do that research. Yeah, it was very hard to get all that research together and for me to feel like I was ready for it to be a book um, because there's, you know, so little documentation 
there was fragmented information and it took a long time. But one of the things, um, and I actually don't remember who told me that Ella Jo Baker was involved in co-ops, but somebody tipped me off. I was able to go to the Schomburg uh, Center for Research in New York City, part of the New York City Public Library. It's a black research center because that's where the archives for the Young Negroes Cooperative League is. And so as I started to read through her archives, the part about her cooperative work in the Young Negroes Cooperative League, I found out what a force she was in co-op education, right? So her job as the national director of the Young Negroes Cooperative League was to help local chapters to form and to start cooperatives. And they focused first on consumer cooperatives, but their notion was consumer cooperatives would be the thing that could drive worker co-ops and factories and credit unions, et cetera. So they had a whole like five-year plan that first you would get a few people together to do a buying club, right, to address their food needs. And then as they got together and learned how to cooperate, they would, you know, form coalitions and then create a, re- uh, sorry, a local credit union and then other local co-op stores and things. And then those stores would collect together into regional councils and the regional councils would all then have representatives in the national group. They had national conferences. I actually got the inspiration for the name of my book, Collective Courage, from something she wrote in one of the first newsletters. She did monthly newsletters to the members in addition to traveling around the country to all the chapters to talk about how to start a buying club, how to start a credit union, how to be cooperators, what it means to be a cooperator. And one of the um, uh, one of her newsletter entries was, you know, it takes courage. Like, right? don't think this is going to be a fast fix. Don't worry if, you know, the first effort doesn't work. It takes courage and endurance, persistence to do this co-op work, right? And if we look at the history of other groups having done co-ops, you can see that, right? It didn't happen overnight. We have to train, retrain ourselves, et cetera. And so I thought, oh, you know what? That's a, that's a fascinating way to look at this whole history because I was also finding in the history, and this is another story, but um, how much sabotage and uh, white supremacist violence was happening against the blacks and against the black co-ops. And so this notion that it was, took collective courage throughout our history to even engage in the movement, to even start these co-op businesses, really, for me, encapsulated what I was finding. And it was from her. It was her inspirational words that gave me that title. And then, as a black woman, her very first speech at the very first uh, conference of the Young Negroes Cooperative League was the role of black women in the co-op movement. And that also just struck me because I was finding throughout history that black women actually had a stronger role in the co-op movement than any other group of women in the U.S. when I was trying to study women's roles in co-ops. And and that was also fascinating, especially because I'm a black woman, but I was fascinated by that energy and the way even the black male cooperators talked about how important the black women and the black women's guilds were to all the co-ops I was finding out about. So it's it's interesting. When I thought about black women, it was compared to my working with uh, housing co-ops that most of the board members were black women, most of the board presidents in the Washington, D.C. area, as opposed to black men. I had never thought about it, as you just said, compared to all women, that black women were more involved in cooperation. That's very, very interesting. 
Do you have any sense of why that was so? You know, I was trying to figure it out, and the best way I could figure it out was, you know, in the black community, unfortunately, black men have been totally emasculated by white capitalism and white society, right? I hate to say it that way. But in many ways, blacks were targeted more when they tried to do, black men were targeted more when they tried to do things, you know, sometimes like in the black churches and stuff, they were kind of the face of things, but it was the women who really did the stuff. And then in co-ops, you know, the black co-op movement really totally grew out of the mutual aid movement and the mutual aid movement was all, was mostly black women. Because again, I think black women were the ones who were doing educating, right? They were educators, they were nurses, so they were doing the health, the education, the community work, the caring work. They were afforded the ability to do it when men weren't really, you know, weren't really either recognized or encouraged to do caring work. And so I think that whole combination of their status in society, even though their status is lower than black men, the things they were allowed to do were the kinds of things that mutual aid and co-ops were trying to do. And so they were right. They were able to kind of fit in there and take over. Um, I also have a, a colleague, a black woman economist, who talks about the ways that black women, the caring work and the community work, even though, you know, our regular society and economics counts it as volunteer work, was really solid labor, right? And we have to understand black women's labor contribution, not just as the labor they did to bring in income, but also the labor they did, what we call social reproduction, to reproduce our families, our world, to reproduce our societies, right? So all that caring work, all the community activism, that we really have to count that as labor and recognize it. And again, black women are the ones at the forefront of that. So I think all that connects to why they were more leaders, had more leadership and stronger roles in uh, in the co-ops. And also I found they had strong roles in the greater co-op movement. Ella Baker was involved in some of that. The other the other nominees, Nanny Helen Burroughs, was actually recognized through the Clusa DC chapter for all the co-op work she did in the nineteen thirties. Helena Wilson was doing all kinds of co-op work and recognized in Chicago by the greater co-op movement for her leadership and the fact whenever they did any new co-op projects between labor and the co-op world, they were invited her because she understood both. So lots of the black women kind of also were able to, uh, what do you call it, bridge two worlds, right, connect to white co-op movement and things like that and were recognized as a force and somebody who could bring people out, right, who could keep things going, who knew the importance of co-op education and continued to educate people um, encourage people to keep going, even when it looked, you know, it was hard going, that kind of thing. And I like Fannie Lou Hamer, by the way, too. I just, I'm from West Virginia. She had Southern accent and, you know, it don't sound like there was much going on upstairs. And when she opened her mouth, just brilliance came out. It's right. phenomenal to yep. listen to her story and uh, listen no to nonsense, her, her but also that holistic view of what a community, right, all the things a community should do, right? Because yeah. Fannie Lou with Freedom Farm and everything, it was a, it was farming so that there was food security. They did uh, child care, worker co-op child care. They were doing affordable housing and housing co-ops. She was like, she said, we have to do all this has to all be over. co-op and collectively owned. And we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, we're going to get more into Fannie Lou Hamer's 
life and what she what she accomplished and Ajawa would be interesting in your research and what you found out. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Fourteen fifty WOL, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to talk now, Ajawa. Um, so, what did you find out about Ella Jo Baker in your research? What was the most striking thing about her life that you found? Well, one of the most striking things is that her whole community, her her way of living, prepared her for her work in the cooperative movement. She was born in in Norfolk, where her father had moved to find a job. You know, she was born in 1903, only 38 years after slavery had ended. And so her father went to Norfolk to find a job. They were he is from Warrington, North Carolina. And in 1910, you know, Ella was born in 1903. In 1910, there was a race riot after Jack Johnson beat James Jeffries in a boxing match. And white people rioted all over the country uh, because, I guess, in their way, this proved the supremacy of black people, and they were trying to keep us in, in line. So two people were killed in the shipyard in Norfolk. And Ella Jo's mother, Georgiana Ross Baker, decided it was too dangerous because her husband was working on a ship and he would be gone for days at a time. And after that riot, she was like, let me go back home to my folks. And um, so she moved back to Warren County. And there, you know, there was a very close-knit community. Black people owned the stores there. They had, you know, an ice cream shop, the corner store, you know, all kinds of uh, ways that they, they helped each other and patronized each other. In fact, her family, uh, Ella's father, was able to buy land and donate land to build a school, the first school for black people. And he also took out loans to help black people survive. They were more middle class, but they were very conscious of helping poorer black people. In fact, her mother was in the black club movement, and they had the philosophy of lift as you climb. And, And they did this in the church as well. So there was a whole understanding about taking care of those less fortunate and working together as a community. So Ella grew up in that kind of community. I mean, it was such that farmers, you know, if one had large equipment, they would uh, use that equipment. Everybody else who had farms would use that equipment. So she came from a background where people were cooperating already. You know, they probably didn't call it co-ops or, you know, those kinds of things. But that was how black people survived. And it really reminded me of my own life growing up in, in, in southern Florida. I mean, that was how our our community was. Everybody looked out for everybody. And um, so Ella went to school, and um, she was, you know, at 15, she was um, went to Shaw Academy and University, and she she became a leader there. Because she was she was outspoken, she played baseball when girls weren't playing baseball. Her grandfather, who was a preacher, you know, basically, you know, built up her self-esteem. So she became a, um, a spokeswoman for for the students, and so she showed leadership potential there. But when she saw that teachers had to do whatever other people said, 
she decided she didn't want that life. So she moved to, once she got her degree, she moved to New York City, uh, where she had a cousin. And, you know, she just decided as a woman, she didn't want that. And she, she went to a, a strange city and, you know, struck out on her own. About what year was that, uh, that she went to New York? She moved to New York, I believe, in, was that 1927? Or she was 27 years old. Let me see. Yeah. So 19, that would be 1930. She's 27, 1930. So that's right. the Harlem Renaissance that's is going right. on. That's right. And then she met George Shiler there. She did, you know, that's another thing I love about it. She did, She was a waitress. She did a factory job. She did all kinds of stuff to survive. You know, even though she had her degree, she just was determined she wasn't going to be oppressed. And she did whatever she had to do to start a new life. She met, she was writing articles, and she met George Shiler, who was um, a publisher. And he was the, the one that had the idea of building co-ops. And he um, enlisted Ella Joe Baker to um, help. And they put our call in 1930 for young Negroes because the feeling was that older Negroes were had sold out. They were too into the religious thing, or they were didn't care about the poor black people or, you know, cared about pleasing white people. And so they wanted to get uh, younger black people who were more militant. And, um, you know, you have to remember, this was in the midst of the Depression as well. The Great Depression was raging. And so they really wanted to find ways to help black people to survive during that Depression. And so they, uh, Shia put out this call. Uh, to organize the young Negroes, and I believe they had was it six hundred people just at that first conference. Um, yeah, they had uh, twenty five chapters who sent delegates, and then six hundred young black people actually attended the conference in Pittsburgh at the end of nineteen thirty in December of nineteen thirty. So the Great Depression, but six hundred people traveled to Pittsburgh because they wanted to talk about co-op development and black co-op development. So really incredible. Right. The whole thing I about read in Jessica's book. Go ahead. You go ahead. The whole thing about calling it. I believe came from Ella because she had already decided she was not going to be like the other women. And she saw through her own family and her community the role that women were playing. And so she saw that, that was as a, a powerful force. And so she wanted to tap into that force and let women know that they could stand up and, and be a part of this new movement, the Young Negroes and, uh, Cooperative League. And she made a specific call for them and also tried to organize women who were housewives to, to be a part of this. So she, she did groundwork and stuff. So somewhere I read, I think it may have been your book, Jessica, that she also won a scholarship from CLUSA, the Cooperative League of the USA to do some training, to get some training about organizing co-ops? Is that? Yeah, actually, you know when that was that. or what that was about? Ajua. Okay, Ajua. Ajua found it, yeah. Yeah, she, she um, Clusa recognized her, her leadership. They saw her working in New York. They heard about Young Negroes Cooperative League, and they offered her a scholarship to come study at the Brookwood Labor College where they were organizing cooperative institutes. 
And at those institutes, they taught you all about the um, co-op movement and how it worked and everything. So Ella, that's another thing. Ella had all of that, those details. And so she was able to take that information and use it to to help with the Young uh, Negroes Cooperatively organizing. But interestingly, um, they made a point of not joining with uh, Clusa, but supporting it. So they were really keen on being independent and making this something that black people uh, led. And and so, but also believe in having allies. They, they, they believe in a black organization, but having white allies and other allies of color. Uh, the other important thing Ella did during those first years was she actually compiled, I guess she made it into a memo, but to me it was like a white paper report on all the black co-ops that she knew of or that she was learning about in the 1930s. And I depended heavily on that report from her archives. She never published it anywhere, but luckily it was in her archives. And I found out, I think there were eight or ten black co-ops during that period that I found out about because of the research she had done and the report that she created for the Young Negroes Cooperative League. So the Young Negroes Cooperative League and the Cooperative League of the USA, I just found interesting that Cooperative League was in both of those names. Very good point. Yeah, uh, and so I was trying to figure out which one started which or whether she did the training at the Cooperative League of the USA first before she started it. But as you talk, Ajua, it looked like she had started that before she took the training. She had started the Young Negro Cooperative League. It started like in 1906 or something. So Clusa Cooperative League of the USA, the name was started much earlier. Okay. Okay. And Ajua, you started to say? No, that there was just a few months between uh, her training and the, the, the Young Negroes Cooperative League conference. Okay. So she did the training first and then the conference of the Young Negroes Cooperative League a few I months ago? I believe. Yes. I believe. Yes. Okay. The organization started about a year or nine months before the conference. So I think it was all kind of happening within the same year, right? She and Shiloh were putting together this organization and creating, getting people from around the country to start chapters. She was taking the, the course, and then they had the conference. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm wondering, with all of the work that she did and the foundation she put, what, what happened that it didn't continue? Well, there was a lot of things. One, you have to remember this was the Depression, and a lot of people didn't have the money. Another uh, analysis that was that Shiloh was very uh, – he, uh, he, he attacked the black middle class a lot particularly preachers. And, you know, there was one analysis that that had something to do with the movement not catching on as well as it could have. And I find it interesting since Ella's grandfather was a preacher and she grew up in the church. And I really wondered if she agreed with um, all of that stuff that he was doing. And then, you know, they just was the same point about money. They didn't have a lot of money to keep the organization going. Even though they had some a lot of successes in New York, they had a, a, a co-op store that was earning $650 a week. And they had another successful one in um, Philadelphia. And they had, you know, groups that were, you know, had their chapters and were doing co-op work. But I think just in the end, um, the financial stuff overwhelmed them. 
And um, interestingly, Shyla took off, but Ella stayed when there was no money to be paid, you know, not even having an office. And she did all of the work to keep a lot of those co-ops going and, you know, speaking to people. Yeah, I think the depression was one of the biggest issues. And also, there wasn't money for the national organization, right? I think people, what money they did have, they put into the, the local co-ops, right? But I also think you're right. They had trouble raising money because of Shiloh. Skyler was just, he was a weird person, right? He was sort of a part anarchist. You know, he actually becomes a conservative by the 1930s, right? He was also very contentious, right? He wrote some novel about, what was it, about some guy passing as white or something. and Black no more. I think he gets, right, black no more and giving up being black. So Skylar was weird. So, yeah, it's, it's clear from the archives that I found that early on he kind of left everything to Baker. Like he was good at starting things but not really good at keeping things going. And Baker did her best, as most women do, to keep this stuff going. Right. And so she did. She kept it going for like five years. She operated out of her own apartment after a while. Right. She had a whole plan that she thought the um, national black organizations could help them with fundraising, but they didn't. So one of her plans was that every time in the first three months of every year when there were a lot of black stuff going on, that black should add an extra penny to whatever they paid for to celebrate black history or black uh History, it was weak in those days in February, but there was also Frederick Douglass's birthday, Du Bois's birthday. There was a used to celebrate Emancipation Day on January 1st. So she thought all that stuff that was happening between January and March, if every black person who in, did paid anything to be involved in any of that stuff put in an extra penny toward the Young Negroes well, Cooperative League, that they could raise enough money. But a, people weren't willing to do we'll that. Take a break. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and talk more about her life. But we really want to talk about what's happening for the future. We'll be right back. This is WOL News Talk 1450 AM at 95.9 FM 95.9. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard and Ajawa Ifateo about the life of Ella Jo Baker, and she's being inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame as an unsung hero. This program is nine years. Uh, we This October, we celebrate our ninth year, and National Cooperative Bank has been our sponsor for those nine years. National Co-op Bank um, was created in the 80s to support co-ops and their members by providing financial services, innovative financial services, particularly to low-income communities which includes brown, black, and native communities, indigenous people communities. So they've been a great, great supporter, both financially and our number one cheerleader. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about fellow Joe Baker's contributions, because we're talking about her in the co-op world, but it seemed like she was best known for her civil rights work. Um, either one of you want to talk about her civil rights work? Let me jump in. Because my contention, and I put it in the book, is that the successes that Ella Baker had as a civil rights leader, and, you know, she worked actually first for the WPA to do consumer education, then she moved into 
the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and WPA was the Works Progress Association under the FDR administration. Anyway, then she went and became a field organizer for the NAACP. And as a field organizer, right, she also was considered one of their best because, again, all the all the things that Audra already talked about, all her skills and personality, she was just a terrific organizer. But she also got known for her work with SNCC, the young people, again, even though she was older by then in the early 60s, right, because she believed that young people should really take the lead in civil rights, in, you know, transformation, et cetera. And the other piece that she was known for was this grassroots leadership, right, this notion that the leadership shouldn't come from these elite men, right, the people who are most impacted should be arguing for themselves, should be organizing for themselves. And I argue, where did she get that notion? Well, she got it because of the co-op movement, right? She spent all those years in the 30s doing mutual aid and cooperative development, and co-ops are all about economic democracy and grassroots, right, people who are in it, owning and running their own businesses. So she understood that whole grassroots notion, what, you know, the broad, small-D democracy, she understood that before she even became a civil rights activist. She learned it from the co-op movement and from her work with co-op. So I've been arguing that all the things she's known and celebrated for, especially when we talk about her role with SNCC and grassroots leadership development, is because of her training in the co-op movement and her early work as a cooperator. Yeah, and at that time, you know, the men were taking all of the uh, the prestige and the, the, the um, speaking engagements and the newspaper articles, and Ella was behind the scenes doing the day-to-day hard work, you know, uh, or the, putting out the flyers, knocking on doors, uh, organizing the fish fries, and making sure that, that the stuff that the leaders, the male, were talking about happened. They got the people out. They did the hard work, the women. And um, and so Ella never really wanted that kind of publicity. She was just more involved in making sure people got organized. So that's why we don't know about Ella, because she never sought the, the limelight, and the other guys did. And I think it's no coincidence that she organized SNCC, because she she it was her idea. It, it happened at Young uh, University. Because it, it's, it's a straight line from... Young Negroes to young civil rights activists. She just she knew where the power was, and so she went to organize them specifically. So I find it very, very interesting, this straight line from cooperative development to civil rights movement activism. And I've also heard uh, in these nine years we've been on that a lot of cooperators uh, learn this democracy, and uh, Jessica, I call it the big D because it's after working and getting people involved, big D democracy, and they go into boards of education or city councils. They learn how important voting is and how important this grassroots involvement is, and that's what Jessica Jessica Gordon-Emhart, that's what Ella Jo Baker learned, <laughs> and maybe Jessica Gordon-Emhart and Ajawa Ipateo and Vernon Oaks learned, okay, is that this co-op movement really helps people to get out and do the, the work, do the grassroots work. So in, in the last five or six minutes that we have, let's talk about the future a little bit. And Ajawa, with your research with Ella Jo Baker, where where do you see the black community going as it relates to this co-op movement? 
Well, I think if we learn the lessons from Ella Jo Baker, that we will take ourselves far. You know, she showed us that this work could be done in, in, in ways where, you know, like she advocated education. That was very important. She talked about the importance of the consumer movement. And she taught, taught us little ways where we could raise money. That penny a day campaign that she had, you don't have to have a lot of money. You just have to be committed. And that speech that Jessica uh, referred to, that courage, that we need to have that courage. So I really think if we just incorporated these ideas, that would help us to deal with some of the problems that we're having today. Okay. Jessica, you have anything to add to that? I think, I mean, I'm really excited about this period of time that we're in because we're in another period of time where people are turning to mutual aid and cooperation and cooperative ownership to solve problems that seem insolvable, right? But when you do it in uh, in a cooperative, collective, solidarity economics way, they are solvable. And so, um, you know, in my book, I talked about three prolific periods for especially black co-ops, but I think probably all co-ops, the 1880s, 1930s, and 40s, and 1960s and 70s, and I'm about to add 2020s <laughs> because I'm seeing it again um, and you know, for me, the Young News Cooperative League, Ella Baker's example, are just additional ways to inspire people and to have people understand sort of the power of working together, the power of collective ownership to solve both personal, family, and community problems, right? And I see people seeing that, I, you know, there's more interest than ever in understanding this history and understanding where it can take us and how what we can learn from it to move forward. There's more and more activities, right? More and more groups are having meetings and conferences and webinars about this information and sharing the information. And so I'm, I'm very excited. I feel like, you know, we're going to have a proliferation of all kinds of um, cooperative activity by people who are really uh, have become knowledgeable, not just committed, but knowledgeable about best practices and things like that. Where would you suggest people that's listening to this program or don't know anything about this co-op world, where would you, to get the training and the knowledge, where would you suggest that they would get started? Well, well one place they can go is to grassroots economic organizing, geo.coop. C-O-O-P, G-E-O dot C-O-O-P. We have a search function. You can go in there and search for how to start worker co-ops and other co-ops. And we have a backload uh, back, uh, of um, information on all types of co-ops around the world. We've done articles for, what, 20, 20 something, oh, 30-something years about how to organize economic um, the democratic workplaces and cooperatives and other alternative uh, economic strategies. So that's one place I would start. That's good. Yeah, I was going to say G-E-O, G-E-O also. G-E-O dot C-O-L-P. Okay. G-E-O dot C-O-L-P. Yeah, I was also going to say we also help to run a site called ed.coop, E-D dot C-O-L-P a co-op education site that GEO and the Association of Cooperative Educators runs. That's another sort of clearinghouse. You can just put in the keywords. Are you trying to start a co-op? Do you want to know more about a worker co-op? Do you want to know more about food co-ops? And then we link to all the other resources online about those things. 
you know, so that's another thing. Of course, you can go to ncba.coop, right? That's the National Co-op Business Association, which is CLUSA, but um, they changed their name. And now I think they're NCBA CLUSA, but their website is still ncba.coop, C-O-O-P. And so those are, you know, the simplest ways. There's actually a lot of information out there. Even the U.S. Uh, DA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has a site about how to start co-ops. Even they focus more on rural and ag co-ops, but they still have it. The Canadians have a bunch of sites. If you're interested in worker co-ops, the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, their website is usworker.coop. So lots of okay. things. In the last minute, and I, Jessica, I'd like for you to close us out. How, if somebody has the name of somebody to be an unsung hero, what would you suggest they do? Like, I would like to see Marin Barry's name be put in there. Well, what would you suggest I do or right. anybody else out there? So the other piece, I think I mentioned it early on, when we created this unsung hero category, we also uh, we got CDF to agree to allocate a little bit of funding for the research. So when the next call comes out for the Hall of Fame, which I think will be in the spring, there will also be uh, a call for nominations for unsung heroes, and you can then apply to one of the education funds, the education pot of money in the CDF funds to do the research, the background research to make your application stronger. It's focused on Thank young you. people and young people of color to do the research, but anybody can apply. Thank you out there, everybody. We'll see you next Thursday. <laughs>